Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books Founder Series, Beverly Tomek on the life experience and gospel labors of Richard Allen. Welcome to the PA Books Founder Series. I'm Phil Beckman. Born enslaved in 1760, Richard Allen would later purchase his own freedom and become a prominent member of Philadelphia's African-American community. Allen was a minister and founder of the First African Methodist Episcopal Church. He wrote about his life in the text, The Life, Experience, and Gospel Labors of the Right Reverend Richard Allen. Joining us to talk about Allen's text is Beverly Tomek. She is an associate professor of history at the University of Houston, Victoria. Uh, let's talk about Allen's text. Uh, how significant is it in the larger historical context? It's extremely significant. It's the first major writing that we have by a black American. And there, the next generation after him, there would be a slew of slave narratives. But his is, is a precursor to all of that. It's also a bridge between that kind of writing that later has a very different style and the early writing of, of the white founders like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. It's um, similar in style because he's trying to share his life in a way that we will all look back and honor, but he's also got the extra weight of what's going on with his race and trying to make broader points so that future Americans will, you know, be kinder, perhaps, to black Americans. How many such texts exist from that time period uh, read by African Americans? His is the first, the only, because it's not until that next group that we get more of them. Now, uh, would, was this something that was published during his lifetime, or was it after he passed away? It was a year after he died. He had been writing it in preparation, the, the, bi the autobiographical part, um, and it was actually published a year after. He, he dies in 1831, and it, it comes out the next year. Let's talk more about his life. Uh, I mentioned he was born in 1760, and yet he was born enslaved. Uh, where, where was he born? So there's some controversy to exactly where, but we do know that he was born to a family that was owned by Benjamin Chu, who had a place in Philadelphia and that's where he says he was born. He remembers it, Alan remembers it as being born or being from Philadelphia. Some historians had said that they thought he was born on one of the other places that the Chews owned, but I'm going to take Alan at face value and think he probably knew from talking, you know, to his family where he was from. Uh, but the, the point is, whichever estate it was, it was a Benjamin Chu estate. Benjamin Chu was the largest um, slaveholder in Pennsylvania. What do we know about Allen's parents? Um, we know that they end up being sold at one point. I believe he and the mom and one or two of the other siblings are sold to another. So we know they're split. They end up being split, which is common. And that kind of illustrates something he kind of alludes to in the autobiography. Because when they're sold, they're sold to a really nice person. And he writes about um, you know, as far as masters go, mine was a kind one. But then a few sentences down, he kind of mentions that, but no matter how kind, they all reach points where they have to sell 
their property and that's where no matter how nice your master is, slavery is, he calls it a bitter pill to swallow. He mentioned uh, that his family was sold from uh, Benjamin Chu to another family in Delaware and that's the person that you're talking about there. Uh, and then his family gets split up, which seemed to be a very common experience among uh, enslaved people. Did, did he ever, is there any documentary evidence that he found his mother and his sisters who were sold at that point? You know, I, I do not, I don't think he found them. I, I could be confusing him with um, William Still, but I don't, I don't think he did. Now he, uh, in, in his autobiography, he describes a, a kind of spiritual awakening. Uh, what, what was that experience like for him? So for him, what it is, is he found Methodism. So um, Methodism is another one of those faiths that, like Quakerism, they're both founded in England as splinters of the Anglican church. The cool thing about Methodism is it's anti-slavery from the beginning. And when it makes its way across the pond to the U.S., the uh, ministers and people who are spreading it are the first to actively reach out to black Americans, enslaved or not. And that's even a step beyond what Quakers did. The Quakers wouldn't have tried to, you know, get black people to come be a minister, whereas some of these Methodist preachers did. And Richard Allen thought that was really neat. He talks later... Um, later on in the in the uh, autobiography where he's talking about why Methodism because there'll come a point where he'll they'll split from the white church and there's some debate you know what denomination if you will and he was adamant that it had to be Methodism even by th that point even though there will have been some uh, discomfort that comes between him and some of the white Methodist leaders but he is convinced that the beauty of Methodism is that at its core they were the first ones to reach out to black Americans and, and court them to join. Yeah, he mentions that, that he was regularly going to meetings. And so the, the man who had enslaved him was allowing them at least enough flexibility to, to attend these meetings. Yeah, and one thing I thought was really interesting is um, kind of reading between, it's kind of there, but to really think about it, it's, some depth of it, I guess, is between the lines, but Apparently, the master is getting some, I guess, some guff from the neighbors. Why are you letting them go to service? And the argument is they're going to be too independent. If you do that, it's going to make them bad slaves. And that is something that in the literature we know was a debate. Do you, you know, allow leeway like that or does it make slaves more likely to challenge you or not? And... Alan picked up on that, and you can see that in the autobiography part because he's talking and he says that he and his brother sort of became determined to do their even better, to do the very best they could, and there were times when they even skipped meeting just to make sure everything was getting done because they didn't want the neighbors to criticize this gentleman for letting them go to church. Now, Alan mentions that, uh, you know, having had this kind of spiritual awakening, that uh, he would go from house to house exhorting my old comrades and telling all around what a dear Savior I had found. So it seemed to have really affected his life at, at that point. It does, so much so, too, that he ends up talking to the owner about, you know, I, I'm worried about you. I wish you were saved. It bothers me that you're not saved. You've been kind to me. And 
and you know, could I please have a friend come talk to you? And the owner ends up caving and says, okay, you can bring your friend. And then it's after that, the friend comes and meets with the owner and his wife. And not long after they're allowed, he allows the Allens to buy themselves. Did that, uh, once he decided that, that he would allow them to purchase their freedom, uh, how did they make money? Would it, did, did he then give them the time to go out and work to make the money? Yes, and um, it was a number of ways that Richard, uh, he talks at one point about, he goes out and he's cutting wood and he works until his hands are bloody. Something I found strange, and, and I still haven't reconciled it, but in the um, autobiography he talks about, it's at this point when he's out making this money to pay the owner back, the former owner, the master, and he says, I learned what hard work was. And I remember thinking when I saw that line, that seems odd to me because enslaved people work their, their tails off. But he, um, he did. He cut wood. He was a, a brick maker at one point, a chimney sweep. He did it, everything. And um, he then also decides or gets invited, if you will, to go on the preaching circuit. And he does. And at first, though, one of the white preachers says, okay, if you come with me, we're going to, um, you know, we'll pay your room and board, so to speak. We'll buy your food and clothes. And Richard Allen says, oh, no, I can't, I can't do it for that. I would expect to be paid. And the white minister says, well, but I'm not. I just get this other. And Richard Allen says, and you'll be taken care of in your old age. I can't expect that same treatment. So we know that he did get paid for his preaching, but he would also stop and do all that physical labor to fund up to a certain period and then go on the circuit again when he wasn't, when he wasn't going to be paid for preaching. So he, he was very self-funded. He not only bought his own freedom, I would say he bought his own right to be part of the preaching circuit, which I thought was very admirable. Do we know how old he was when he bought his freedom? Oh, I didn't do the math, but he, he said it was in his 20th year that he really kind of wakes up and catches on how bad he has it, which that seems kind of strange too, doesn't it? But um, so probably in his 20s, he's doing all this physical labor. So as he's going around on the preaching circuit, was it unusual at that time for an African-American to be preaching? Was he preaching to uh, white congregants, African-Americans? Who, who were the, the people he was preaching to? It's At first, it's African-Americans in the woods when they're, at the very beginning, he's talking. He ends up, though, he preaches to, to mixed audiences because when he's on the circuit with the white preachers, he's going along with them, too. And I think it's, isn't it Radnor Township he keeps mentioning where he's very well-received. So I believe there he's, he's got listeners from all kinds of backgrounds. So the, the circuit, he, he writes about traveling to New Jersey, and he he's, talks about the Lancaster Circuit. Uh, he visits York. He goes down to Baltimore. Uh, it, it was he, you mentioned he was traveling with other people, so it, I guess it was a group of people going around uh, preaching to, to different congregants. He mentioned several different um, white ministers that he went with. And I think some of that, though, he's on his own. And he makes at one point, um, an, on one of those journeys, he's so determined to keep going that he walked until he, he could barely walk anymore. He must have been determined to get this word out, huh? <laughs> Now he mentions that he was in Baltimore for a general conference in 1784. Uh, was, was that just a, a, 
of part of the Methodist Church? Methodist, yeah, Methodist Conference. What would that have involved? That's just, um, there would have been people coming from all the different, I almost said parishes, I was raised Catholic, I'm sorry, but different um, congregations to share ideas and talk, kind of like a Quaker yearly meeting, which I'm more familiar with Quaker, but it's just getting, getting the leaders together. Now, at one point, he mentions that at that meeting, uh, Reverend Bishop Asbury asked him to travel to the Carolinas, and uh, he, but he told him, he told Allen that uh, he must not intermix with the slaves, and, I, and he says, I would frequently have to sleep in his carriage. I told him I would not travel with him on these conditions. He seemed to be very forthright about what he would would not accept. Yes, and that um, goes along, too, with him saying he expects to be treated well, doesn't it? But... I, I see what they're worried about there is, you know, this idea if he's out seen mixing with the slaves, then there's going to be backlash. People are going to think he's fomenting rebellion. Now, in 1786, he, he comes to Philadelphia and he says that he expects to be there maybe just a couple of weeks, but he, it ends up being a much longer stay for him than that. Uh, what happens to him as he comes into Philadelphia and starts interacting with, with the people there? He starts, um, he's with St. George's and... They tell him, I think that he could preach at the 5 a.m. or the some ridiculous early slot, right? That he could preach in the early slot. And people come, though, and he gets a bit of a following. And so more people start coming to St. George's. And they end up having to expand the church because the congregation grows. And he's proud of that. I mean, I would be as well, right? Um, they... He and Absalom Jones and some other black leaders by this time, there's, I believe, four people that take a role in helping to get the money to expand this church. And after it's all expanded and they're proud and everyone's proud, they're told they have to sit in the balcony. And there is some, uh, I guess, controversy around this story of the, the way he tells it versus the way it might have been in terms of that particular dramatic event because when it happens matters and some records indicate it happening a little bit different moment in time than he writes. But basically the way he writes it, it makes it absolutely justified that they would then walk up, walk out and, and leave St. George's to create their own church. And that was, that was something he had been working, you know, on previously. Uh, so would this have been a community of, of free African-Americans or was it a mix of free African-Americans and enslaved people that he was preaching to there in Philadelphia? It would be primarily free, but I wouldn't be too surprised if if there are some you know owners here and there that are like his own that would let people go as long as it doesn't interfere with their work. So as he tells the story about uh, the congregants leaving and people being pulled up from their knees to make them sit in the gallery, uh, so when they left, did they, were they determined then to start their own church? Yes. Um, well, that's part of the controversy, too, is at what point had they already decided that they were going to create their own church? Um, under his telling, it's not as clear as a friend of mine who's a historian, Richard Newman, has written that he seems more clear that they had absolutely decided before, even before the dramatic event, that they were going to create their own church. So what's the first step when you, when they set out to create a church, uh, what do you do? How do you do that? They got their land, they got land and they actually ended up with uh, multiple parcels of land. Uh, Richard Allen bought one himself. 
that ends up not being the one they use it for for the they get a shed in a different location and and they start um, there and then they'll end up using his land later but do they have to raise money oh yeah and um, obviously even if you have friends who are free blacks their resources are going to be limited they're not paid very well even when they're the most skilled at any profession they don't make you know a lot of money so they turn to their friend Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Rush supports them and, and gives money and I believe Robert Robert Ralston I get him mixed up with Gerard I think it was Robert and um, they give they give some money to help make this a reality yeah it sounds like in the text that that uh, Rush and Ralston uh, were thought very highly of uh, by by Alan he says that, that he hopes that their names will never be forgotten among us they must have made a very positive contribution to the establishment of that church. They did, and um, they did in other ways too. Uh, they were Benjamin Rush is among the um, white reformers that were with the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, and so he was seen as a friend in, in many ways. So, uh, did they once they decide they're going to set up their own church? Uh, were they? committed at that point to still being Methodist or cause you, you mentioned earlier that that there was a controversy at some point about what direction they would go yeah because some people were unhappy that they had been you know pulled up off their knees and, and kind of you know sent to the balcony in the Methodist Church and they wanted to consider other options and Absalom Jones does he ends up joining the Episcopalians or Anglicans the American version of Episcopalian and um, among the others, they kind of talked about it, and uh, Alan was adamant that he wanted to remain a Methodist. So Absalom Jones ends up going to St. Thomas, where he becomes the first black preacher, and Alan ends up staying, and they found the church that we now call Mother Bethel. Uh, and Alan claims, he says, that I was the first proposer of the African church, uh, so that was that, there's nothing like this existed in Philadelphia at this point, correct? Right, right, anywhere. Uh, now, they, they held an election to, uh, to what we're talking about here. He writes about how they held an election to determine the denomination, and, but the majority went with the Church of England. Uh, did, and how big, did the congregation then split, or did they remain part of the same group? Some, some follow um, Absalom Jones, and then some continue on with Alan. Now, the, uh, the text also includes something called the African Supplement. Yes. What was that? That is his tracing of um, events that happened that lead up to them. Um, so, so there's the split from St. George Church, and then there's the dissension that kind of where they split from the formal Methodist organization, so to speak. They remain Methodist, but... They create sort of their own niche to not be held under that umbrella because what happens is that white leaders, a lot of the same ones who wanted them in the balcony, don't appreciate the idea of the independent church. So they try multiple ways to pull them back into the fold so that they can control them. And um, at one point they try to say, all right, you've built this church, but now to be Methodist you got to be, you, you sort of put it in the... Um, of Methodist structure, I'm drawing a blank on the word, but um, so 
no, they resist that. Well, then the white leadership class says, okay, well, we're going to send these preachers to preach to you guys on Sundays. And no, they resist that to the point of, you know, kind of standing up and, and actively getting in the way. And they win because they won't, they won't give up and they're determined that this is our church. We're not going to be told what to do. And so that whole process ends up splitting in a formal way where they're still Methodists and they're still kindred spirits with Methodism, but they've gained this independence from the formal structure. And they create the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, so once this happens, uh, does does that the AME church then begin to spread or how long does it because uh, eventually it would spread and there would be many other congregations around the country. It does spread. It's, it, we even have, have them in Texas. It spreads everywhere. Um, I'm not sure how long it takes it to spread but as you know black Philadelphians become part of that and then move for whatever reason they want to take their faith just you know kind of how white congregations spread. Now, the, this African supplement part, uh, it seems almost like a, like a contract in what, what it includes in the text. And the fact that he wanted that drawn up, that just, it, it speaks to his independence and his, his pride in a good way. I don't mean pride in a bad way. I know pride can be a bad word, or, but it, his pride in what he's accomplished and his need to protect what he's accomplished from people who have multiple times by that point tried to step in and take it. Now, the text also includes sections uh, called Acts of Faith, Acts of Hope, Acts of Love. Uh, what is he talking about in those sections? He's, that's where I believe, and tell me if you, because you, you know, we both, I believe he's trying to um, share his, that's sort of his religious, but his thought on what these things mean in a more uh, spiritual kind of way. It's, it's not as much, he's given us, you know, just the facts, ma'am, before that. And then I think he's trying to pull in his, his doctrine, if you will. So, uh, the, and this autobiography or this overall text includes several different pieces that, that uh, it often seems like a miscellany of pieces put together. Uh, and one of them is a narrative of an epidemic that, that hit Philadelphia in 1793. What, what was that epidemic? Um, <clears throat> yes, that, and that's, um, the narrative that I'll tell you about the epidemic, but what's cool is that narrative that he brought in here and included it, he included that and several other things. So it's an autobiography, but it's also an, a sort of a collection of his writings. And it would be unheard of for a black leader of his generation to have a, be important enough to have a collection of writings. But that epidemic is yellow fever. And um, Back to Benjamin Rush. So when the yellow fever epidemic hits, Benjamin Rush is a doctor, and he, for whatever reason, believes that people of African descent are immune to yellow fever. So he writes a letter to black leaders, particularly Richard Allen. And in that letter, he says, you know, since you guys are immune, this would be a great opportunity. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. This would be a great opportunity to sort of win favor with your white neighbors, show them that, you know, you're in good faith, you're helping your fellow man at a time when they need your help, and it would make God very happy. So Allen and Jones, and they rally, and they get members of the black community together, and they say, okay, we're, we're immune, we need nurses, and we need people to take away the dead. 
because people are dying. Um, four to 5,000 Philadelphians, which to us may not sound like a lot, but at the time it was a lot. Um, 400 black Philadelphia, free black Philadelphians, which again, it may not sound like a lot, but at the time it really was. We'll talk later about the, the black Philadelphians dying. But just, um, it was so transformative. All but one newspaper in the city shut during all this. People are, you know, those who can, who have country homes, are fleeing to country homes. The whole city's affected. So Richard Allen reaches out to everyone he can among his black community of friends and says, look, there's no one left to minister the sick. People are dying in their homes with no one to even give them water. So let's do what we can. So they do. They answer in, in a large call proportionally, you know, to their number. And at first they're just doing it. Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, they're taking time from their own work. They had just been given right before the epidemic, they had been given a, a good sized loan from the, um, Pennsylvania Abolition Society because they were opening a, a nail factory, which would be great in good times, right? So they set all that aside to do their duty and help. So they're losing money out of their pocket. But what starts to happen is the people they've appealed to as volunteers, they're stretched so thin. Now they need more people to come help. So they're having to pay nurses above the ones that originally responded. And while they're doing that, People are independently, you know, white families who have money, independently reaching out and offering to pay nurses to come help them. So the labor value goes up and it becomes, it's like today where they say nobody will come take certain jobs, right? So during that, um, a guy named Matthew Carey, he's a white editor and newspaper publisher and, and one of the main white voices of the time. As it all starts to wind down, he writes a narrative. And in that narrative, he talks about how black citizens were basically price gouging and how they pilfered homes and all these things. He may have seen one case of pilfering, and he did this blanket statement. And Richard Allen then and Absalom Jones write this narrative to counter it. And they're saying, hang on. We came forward. We were trying to help. Yeah, okay, the, the wages got high for the reasons I just described. That's how I learned, you know, they laid all that out, why it happened. And there are some quotes that I just really think are meaningful during this exchange. In, um, so basically, look at it this way before I find the quote. Um, he's in a time where any little thing attributed to one black American gets blown up as, see what they're like, right? They plunder, they charge a lot of money. And he's replying that um, that's, not, that's not right. He says, um, basically don't make us blacker than we are. Isn't that a weird thing to say? But what he means by blacker is the stigma that white Americans had attributed to blackness at this point. You can't trust black people. They're, um, they're not good citizens. He's trying to say, because Carrie comes back and says, look, Alan and Jones, y'all were great. I was just talking about these other people. So they're saying, that's not good enough because you were 
generalizing, and now everything you said about the other people, you just slammed every good person in our community. And it's just forceful how they make the case that uh, black abolitionists from this generation on would make about things you say about one of us, people attribute to all of us. And it goes to the whole self-help philosophy where he's trying to say, don't do that. And that's the whole point of his narrative. Don't do that. And he tries to show why you shouldn't do that. And then he says, and by the way, guess what? We weren't immune. We came here and helped and he got sick. And you know, he, he says, but we helped. Is there any uh, documentary evidence about how this was received in Philadelphia? Uh, about Carrie's pamphlet? No, uh, Alan's response. Alan's response. Um, historically, it's, it's been a very important document that we've kept. Um, sadly, Carrie, in, in the day and time that all this is happening, Carrie's writing is the one that it sells so many copies and it's what people are listening to. In the long term, I would argue Alan won because if you read Carrie's and you read Alan's, you feel what Alan's saying in, in deep and meaningful ways. But at the time, no, it, it's a Carrie win, if you will. Now, one of the other texts that, that's included in here is, is an address to those who keep slaves and approve the practice. Uh, what, what argument is he making there? To the, oh, this one I found really interesting. Some of the um, things I've written about and, and almost sort of criticized white writers for saying he makes the same points, though. So for some context, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson's written about ending slavery, and he ends up concluding, oh, we'll leave that for the next generation. It can't be resolved. And um, Allen makes some of the same arguments, and, and a big one being, look, this is dangerous. It's dangerous that you this practice of slavery because people, they could rise up and there could be bloodshed and you want to stop, stop that before it happens. And um, he has a quote, for the sake of your children, for the sake of our children, end it now. So he's by, he's kind of saying the same thing that, you know, Jefferson and others have done, which is, I don't want to say fear mongering because it's kind of something that could have happened, right? But then he says, but you can fix it. Instead of Jefferson fear-mongering and saying, oh, but we'll let the next generation. He's like, no, you're right. There could be a race wars going forward if you don't fix it, but fix it. And then in one of the other pieces where he's writing to black Americans, enslaved and free, he directly addresses them about it, right? Like, look, some of you, I know you're still enslaved right now. I was enslaved myself, and you may perhaps not have as kind of master as I did, but be patient, and he, he's preaching patience to them. And then he turns around and he tells the free black community, speaking of self-help, he says, um, I entreat you to consider the obligations we lie under to help forward the cause of freedom. He's talking to both populations and telling them that. Think big picture. Let's, let's be that good example to show that we deserve freedom. So uh, when we look at this document as a whole, uh, did it have an impact on the kind of growing movement, uh, the anti-slavery movement, the, the movement for African-American civil rights at the time? Uh, or was this something that historians are now looking back and realizing its significance? Well, at the time, the, 
the right people, if you will, the abolitionists, received it well. Um, and then the literate black community received it well. Benjamin Rush, I would bet, probably received it well, but um, there's one piece in there that as I'm reading it, having reread Rush's letter to Allen, I feel like he called him out a little bit. And I think he probably received it well because he went on and continued to help the black community. But it's um, a short address to the to the friends of him who hath no helper. And he's talking about, um, he's thanking abolitionists like Benjamin Rush. Thank you guys for helping us. It's been very important, the work you've done. But then he says something a little more radical. He goes, but... Um, our Savior also often administered to the necessities of the poor in money. So, you helped us be free, thank you. Could you now help us build infrastructure and keep going, doing more of the things that um, Rush did in terms of the church? And he ends up in this address, I feel like some of it's paraphrasing the letter that Rush had sent him about God sees. You know, he sees when we're all talk. He sees when we help others. So you want to please God, right? Which is pretty much what Rush had asked him in the letter. Uh, so when we look back at this document, uh, how, what does it show us about uh, the type of community that Alan was, was living in? It shows us, it shows us good and bad. It show, the bad it shows is that he's in a world where no matter how smart he is, no matter how good and decent he is, there's a large segment of the general population that's never going to see that, and they're only going to see dark skin. And he's in a constant uphill battle against that. So that's, I would say, the bad of what we see. But the good of what we see, I think, is... When he's reaching out, he's talking to these white leaders. It shows us that there are allies and that he knows there are allies and that they're partners in a lot of ways to the extent that they can be. And progress is happening. It's just slow. Now, when we think of America's founders, we think of some of the very famous names, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Uh, how should we think of Richard Allen as a founder in of that generation too. I think he is the founder of um, black freedom in a lot of ways. He's the founder of black abolition. Um, there are other black abolitionists in England at this time, but I mean, he's the, the founding one that we can think of in the U.S. And what I mean by that is in a simple narrative, we could think of this generation being freed by the work of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, right? Pennsylvania Abolition Society did not have black members until they let um, Purvis in, in in like 1840s. So Richard Allen is not a member of that society or anything like it. But he creates a parallel infrastructure that's just as important. He creates a free African society, which is a mutual aid society. He creates the first independent black church. He is speaking to these white leaders and working. they're working in tandem. So they may not be in the same group, but they are working towards the same goal. So he sets up the black side of this struggle. So, you know, people that came later, Martin Delaney, others of the next generation, they all owe that to Richard Allen. Also, I would say that um, 
his work set up the financial infrastructure for the black side of the freedom movement, him and um, James Fortin. And by earning money the way they did and, and becoming independent, they then gave money to th um, things like newspapers that are founded for abolition. And all of that happened because of these guys. Well, we've been speaking with Beverly Tomek, and we've been talking about Richard Allen's text, The Life, Experience, and Gospel Labors of the Right Reverend Richard Allen. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.